This morning we're continuing on in our series called Living in Hope, methodically working through the book of 1 Peter. Section by section, we've been looking through this letter, a letter that Peter wrote to a group of churches in an area that's now northern Turkey. And Peter's been asking and answering the question, how do you live in a culture that is hostile to your faith? A question that I think some of us are starting to resonate with a little bit, even in our own culture. How do you, how do you live in a culture that is hostile to your faith? And as we've worked through this letter, Peter has been challenging these believers and subsequently us to recognize over and over again and quite thoroughly that this world is not our home. It's not our everything. He even goes so far as to call them foreigners and exiles so that we would even get the point that we are foreigners. We are exiles. This world isn't ours. It's not our home. We have a citizenship in heaven. And because of that, this world will reject us. It will reject our worldview. It will reject our king. And as we see a shift in our country where traditional values are not embraced the way they once were, where Christianity was a dominant part of our culture, friends, it is not anymore. We are watching the world and our country reject our worldview and our values. And you know what the best part about it is? It's going to be awesome for the kingdom of God. Now I get it. It feels rough. It feels like a huge challenge. But overtly, over and over again, people are writing that the margins of the church are falling off. That the people who culturally claimed Christianity but never believed or falling off, and that the church will rise up. And the coolest part about it, friends, the church always grows in persecution. Always. You want the church to thrive? Start pushing hot buttons. The church grows in persecution. That's Peter's challenging them to, hoping them for, and pushing us towards. So how do you respond in these situations How did they respond? Peter calls us, us who have believed in Jesus Christ, us who have been born again, and please don't miss the distinction. If you don't know Jesus Christ personally, you cannot claim his promises. You cannot claim his security. And to be quite frank with you, the path that he calls you to will never ever make sense. This is the part of Christianity that's falling off now. The part that doesn't get it. Friends, if you do not know Jesus Christ in a personal way, if you've not believed that His death and His resurrection paid the full price for your sin, all of it, and that the full weight of your sin was imputed onto Him at the cross, and the full weight of His righteousness was imputed back into you. Now, I'm not telling you you have to nail it. I'm not saying you have to understand even what all those terms mean. We all struggle. But we do have to believe that Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover our sins. Because if we don't know that, we risk all of eternity. And frankly, all the comfort of knowing Him as we walk through this world. When Peter writes, he doesn't take that for granted. We must be born again. We must believe in Jesus. 
And so he calls these believers, these Christ followers, these people who've staked their life and their eternity in the hands of Jesus to walk in the face of opposition, to walk in the face of suffering, and to walk in the face of shame. And rather than asserting themselves or their desires, that they would assert Jesus Christ. That, it would lead, that they would lead with Him rather than me. That we would submit ourselves to Him. That we'd all be willing to endure all kinds of suffering as a testimony for Him. Following His example. And we've spent at least the last five weeks walking through a theology of suffering. Seeing how Christ can use our exclusion from culture. How Christ can use our suffering, our shame, all for His purposes and for His glory and church. we got to start leaning into that. That He will use our suffering, our struggle, our shame, our trials for His glory. So last week He began to conclude this idea of being rejected for His glory and bring it to application by calling us to be armed with the same way of thinking. That as a people clinging to Him, that we'd be prepared to be rejected. That we'd be prepared to be excluded. That we'd be prepared to be shamed. That we'd even be prepared to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. As we cross in our American culture where persecution hasn't yet even bared much of its weight, that we even be prepared to be awkward. That was a moment I put before us last week that we'd be willing to step into those awkward moments in relationships with people. Those awkward moments where shame can hang in the balance. But we have a unique opportunity to testify to Jesus Christ. And I told you, I've been praying for you by name, that God would give each of you an incredibly awkward moment this past week. That you'd have the opportunity to testify Jesus Christ. So now I want to ask you if you had one. Oh, accountability time. Anyone have an awkward moment? Listen, see, he got some hands up. Now look around. Find these people during coffee time and ask them about it. Ask, hey, what was your awkward moment like? What did that look like? Because anytime you want to bring up a gospel conversation, it's always awkward. Every single time. This past week I was in my backyard trying to chase away rabbits in a more aggressive manner. And I started talking to my neighbor across my fence. He's sharing with me that his wife is dying of cancer. I'm wanting to back away from this conversation because I feel awkward. But rather than stepping into it and going, well, where are you guys at with the Lord? Because that's what that conversation needed. That, that was the important moment of that place. If you're dealing with a potential death in your family of your, your spouse, Friends, the only thing that mattered in that conversation was Jesus. The weather didn't matter. The twins don't matter. My rabbits don't matter. Jesus does. So I began to have a conversation with my neighbor about Jesus, and I tell you, it was awkward. And it's inevitably going to lead to more awkward conversations, but awkward conversations that are worth stepping into, awkward conversations that are worth the weight of eternity. Why? Because it's worth it. Because Jesus Christ is worth it. And frankly, the price 
is small. This morning we're going to be finishing out chapter 4. I ask you to open up your Bibles to 1 Peter 4.12. Again, opening your Bible so you see we're walking through God's Word, not Ben's opinion. We rest on the Word of God. 1 Peter 4.12 starts this way. Peter writes, Beloved. Peter writes, Those of you whom I dearly and, and please note, contextually, he's now talking about you. That those who have believed in Jesus Christ, whom he loves as family, my beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. Peter says, people, I love the church. This will happen to you. This, this suffering, this shame, it will come to you. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. In John 15, 20, Jesus told the disciples this. He said, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. The words of Jesus. Jesus is forecasting for you that it will happen to you. Jesus said it. Jesus' disciple Peter says it. We're going to come back and back into a couple of different places in the scripture that also say it. God is seeing to it through multiple times in his holy word that his people get challenged with this idea that we will be called to suffer of Jesus Christ over and over again. And if you step into Christian history, if you pick up a, a history of the church, you will find in every generation, whether it looks this way or that, it's happened all over. And guys, be wise about that. Don't just read American history. Because we've had it easy. We've had it so easy. This, this week I was reading a, uh, on Twitter. I got caught on by following IMB, the International Mission Board, the uh, missions wing of the Southern Baptist Church. And uh, they tweeted out, David Platt's now leading that, uh, a tweet from a, a, a gal who is serving in Asia, they didn't tell us where, that they, the electricity was out in her apartment. So she took a picture of her, the thermostat in her apartment, 104 degrees in her apartment. That's not outside, that's in her apartment. Now that's an oppression that I don't know. That's not even getting to what she's dealing with outside of her apartment. Friends, people are enduring all kinds of things. Two weeks ago, there was a story of a pastor and his wife in China. The Chinese government was threatening to bulldoze their church. They refused to let them do it. They stand in the way. What's the foreman do? Run them over. They pushed them into the building, collapsed the whole building on top of them, both of them died. Friends, it's happening all over the world. This is not a new thing. And just because it happens 1,000, 1,500, 2,000, 3,000 miles from us, these are our brothers and sisters in Christ that the Bible testifies towards, but it testifies to us too, that we would be able to endure shame or suffering, whatever that looks like, even awkwardness for the cause of Christ. Peter probably wrote this letter in the early 60s, depends on who you want to read. 
using a calculator, I can tell you that that's 1,956 years ago. In the span of nearly 1,956 years, the church has repeatedly experienced such fiery trials. In fact, there are many commentators who suggest when Peter writes the term fiery trials, he's very clearly alluding to the reference that Nero was taking Christians, covering them with oil, putting them on a spike, and burning them alive to light the city streets of Rome. And he's telling him, you need to be ready for this. This is a fiery trial. Now, I don't suspect that's going to be any of our challenges this week. Other commentators allude to the idea of a purifying kind of trial that God will use to grow us up, to mature us. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes this in James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James, you're going to endure these trials. They're, they're going to come at you. There's going to be lots of different kinds of them. Don't act like that's just speeding tickets. There are going to be various trials coming at you, James writes in verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Your faith is going to get checked along the way. You're uncomfortable with that. Read the book of Job. You'll get really uncomfortable with it. Your faith will be tested. And God is using those tests to grow you up. Because faith produces steadfastness. That as we endure these challenges, we start to stand up. And we start to get strong. And we start to endure it. With a strength that comes from Him through the faith we have in Him. And in verse 4, James writes, And let steadfastness have its full effect. And when he writes that, keep in mind, if you're going to have steadfastness take its full effect, suffering has to have its full effect. So the faith will have its full effect. So that steadfastness could have its full effect. And look at the end in James, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, if you want to lack nothing, suffer. It doesn't say get rich. It doesn't say buy a lottery ticket. Even if it's like three and a half billion dollars, suffer. So James teaches here that it will grow us up. Friends, if you'd allow me to be this bold, this is the calling of the Christian life. That Jesus Christ would rule and reign in our lives so completely that we would endure trials and shame and challenges, regardless of where they come from. If, if that's the wind, if that's the weather, if that's a medical diagnosis, I don't know what's before you this week that we would endure challenges and trials with a peace that transcends all understanding. Why? Because we're aligned with Jesus Christ. And we know about eternity. And we know that this world will be so short and compared to everything else. And because of that, we're willing to be rejected, excluded, shamed, caused to suffer, and even awkward, so that Christ would be exalted 
Jesus told us this was coming. James told us it was coming. Told us that it would be used to grow us up, to mature us. That indeed through trials, wait for it, we would lack nothing. Verse 13, but rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. James says, count it all joy. Peter says, rejoice. Now if we're going to take a poll and sufferings comes, who's giddy? Well, it's not me. I don't think this is referring to this happiness like, uh, yes! All right, cancer! Nailed it! I, I don't think that's pointing that to us. I, I do think it's talking to a rejoicing, a joy that's rooted in Jesus Christ that says that regardless of what we're going through, there could be a mourning process with it, which is great, but that we recognize that Jesus will use whatever it is for his ultimate glory. And we'd submit whatever this is to his ultimate glory. That whatever demise I might be feeling, that part of the resolution to that is, but God, you're going to use this. And I'm going to trust it. You're going to use this for your glory. You're going to allow this thing, whatever it looks like, this hardship or challenge or trial or suffering, you're going to use it. See how Peter uses the phrase. He says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. For when we are submitted to Jesus Christ, when we're ridiculed, spoken poorly of, shamed, dismissed, or even abused, it is about Jesus Christ. It's about Him. You may remember in the book of Acts in chapter 5, it's an astounding chapter. You want to be bold, I'd avoid it. Um, After the disciples are arrested for preaching. The temple guard come and they arrest them and they put them in prison. Uh, You will remember the angel lets them out of prison. They go back to, what do you think? I'd hide. No. These guys go preach some more. So they get re-arrested. And having arrested them already and that not stopped them, which is a good testimony, they get arrested and they go, hey, should we like lower our temperature for Jesus? No, let's do it again. So they get rearrested, and in Acts 5.41, he tells you the result. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were high-fiving one another. Because the Romans, who by the way, not more than a couple months ago, had crucified Jesus, they knew the threat of the Romans. Because the Romans saw so much of Jesus in them that they wanted to beat it out of them. In fact, verse 40 makes it clear that the, this term in 41, dishonor, means they were beaten physically. All 11 of them. They rejoiced that they could have been beaten for Jesus. Let that soak in. That they were willing to endure something for the cause of Christ. In Philippians 3.10, Paul writes, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection 
and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul writes, not only do I want to know Jesus, I want to know the power of his resurrection. And I think most of us track with that pretty well. Man, I want to know Jesus. I want to see the dead parts of me made alive. I want to know Jesus. And I may share in his sufferings. That's that part of my Bible. I was like, let's just go to sleep and wake up and live out the first part of that verse. Paul says, I want to know his sufferings, that I could share in them, that I would know Jesus better, that I could exalt him more. Peter continues in verse 14. If you were insulted for the name of Christ, let's pause for a moment. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, the last part is important, the name of Christ. One of the most challenging things to me about our new perspective in America, air quotes, new perspective, is how often people are looking to be offended. How often people are looked to be offended by absolutely everything all the time and they personalize it as if it's actually about them. When Starbucks takes Merry Christmas off their cups, "Mm, that's about me. How dare they? They owe me a Merry Christmas. Really? That's about you? Because I thought it was about Jesus. We need some thicker skin, friends. We need some thicker skin. When Peter's writing this, he's saying, if you're insulted for the name of Christ... And he's not talking about a they didn't say Merry Christmas to me kind of thing. This verse gets abused and taken out of context. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, for his name, for his name you're insulted. Somebody looks at you and says because of Jesus, you're clearly an idiot. If because of Jesus, they put you down expressly because of Jesus. Directly to you, not indirectly, not on social media, then Peter says you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That just as the disciples suffered beatings for his name, when we're insulted for his name, it glorifies God. Our willingness in those moments to submit ourselves that Christ would be exalted. It's that moment where the aroma of Christ, which is the fragrance of death to the unbeliever, starts to emanate, starts to come off of you. Jesus said in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. According to Jesus, we're blessed. We're drawn closer to Him. We're built up. According to James, we're built up. Our faith is encouraged. We're strengthened. We're purified. And we are blessed. And then Peter gives us a warning, draws a line in the sand. Should you endure persecution, should you endure suffering, do not retaliate. He brings us back to 1 Peter 3, 9. When he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called when in 15 he writes this. 
But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Now, Peter's not calling us to passivity here. He's not calling us to not get trampled over. He's calling us in response to how we might be abused for the name of Jesus Christ. That we don't go around killing people. Or stealing things. Or causing evil or meddling. Basically, in those moments, should you be persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ? Should you suffer? Should you be shamed? Should it get awkward? Don't fire back. Don't make it about you. Peter says, don't make it about you. It is Christ who will judge all things in the end. It is the name of Jesus Christ that will cause every knee to bow. Not mine. So we let Jesus Christ be the judge, not me. I I don't have to seek my own retribution because I know that Jesus Christ, it will all be retributed. I don't have to work it out. It doesn't have to be about me. I don't have to cause suffering to somebody else because of the suffering caused to me. Which is a challenging teaching. In the most difficult of circumstances, and keep in mind this was written in a time of the most difficult circumstances, we make it about Him. Because we're submitted to Him. In verse 16 he says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, drawing back the distinction, let him not be ashamed Let him glorify God in that name. Peter writes, you suffer for doing foolish things. It's going to cause shame. It's going to be about you. But if your suffering is because of the name of Jesus, it's about him. Praise God. 17, another verse that gets misquoted, misdirected, and misunderstood. Peter continues to write, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And what Peter writes here in the context of 1 Peter, friends, we teach through whole books of the Bible, so when we come to Bible verses, we get that we keep it in the context of the book of 1 Peter. If you pluck this and just say, hey, we can do anything to the church we want, you miss the context of 1 Peter. What Peter's writing here is, as suffering increases, as judgment of the world increases, it's time for that to happen. That the world will begin to turn up the heat. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. The Romans were stirring. Our culture is stirring. Hardship is coming. And that suffering by the hands of the world will happen. And it happened in Peter's time. And it happened in every century until ours, and it's happening now. And Peter resolves that and says, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? This is how you know that it's about the world turning up the heat on the church. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and of the sinner? And Peter parallels this passage. He says, judgment is coming to the church, but a greater judgment is coming to the world. That you may endure hardship for a time, but those who reject Christ will endure hardship forever. He, he parallels the judgment so that for you it would be in perspective that retribution is not yours. 
For you may endure a little bit for the cause of Jesus Christ. But when the world rejects Jesus Christ, it will endure a lot. And then he closes in verse 19 with one of the high point statements in his letter. A summary statement, if you will, but you have to build up to it. In verse 19 he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Friends, if you've wanted to know for the last four weeks what the Bible is pushing you to, what you live out, what you memorize, what you make yours, 419 is your gift. Therefore, Peter writes, in lieu of everything that's been written about suffering, let those who suffer, according to the Bible, it's us, all of us, it's coming. Don't be surprised. Let all of those who suffer according to God's will, oh, He's sovereign, and He's in control, and He's absolutely keenly aware of what's going on in your life. He knows what's around the corner at work, purifying our lives. Don't miss God's sovereignty on display in this verse. Let those who suffer according to God's will, what do we do? Peter gives us two things. That we'd entrust our souls to a faithful Creator. That we'd hand our souls, our lives, our identity, our hopes. We'd hand all of ourselves to a faithful Creator whose name is... Oh, be bold. Jesus. For He was the Creator of all things, and He's faithful. So when you hand over everything to the Creator, no, it's all in His sovereign plan that even your sufferings are part of His plan for you, and I know that's crazy uncomfortable, you hand it back to Him because He's faithful. We entrust our souls to Him while doing good. We keep serving Him. We keep talking about Him. We keep exalting Him. And don't miss this. Because in First Peter, to keep exalting the name of Jesus, Christ, to keep talking about the name of Jesus Christ, landed him in jail in Acts 5, got him beaten in Acts 5, ended up in all kinds of other things if you travel through Acts and step into historical Christianity. Most of these guys were murdered for talking about Jesus. Entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Friends, our God is faithful. And I have no idea what's on your plate this morning. I have no idea what is causing suffering or struggle or challenge or trial in your life right now. And it may seem utterly and completely hopeless. But please know this. Entrust it to Jesus. And somehow, 
some way he'll use it for his glory for eternity. Because he's faithful. God has this really great habit of taking people's pain and using it for his glory. Whether he walks you through a challenging experience and then makes you an ambassador to that people. It is amazing how people who've had cancer can walk back into the lives of people with cancer and can share about God's faithfulness. It is amazing how people who've come through substance abuse can walk back into the lives of people struggling with substance abuse, speak to it in a way that's meaningful. God takes our sufferings, uses him for our glory. As Peter closes this section, he makes it plain suffering is coming. I don't know what that's going to look like in our culture. But we're called to entrust ourselves to Jesus and to keep to keep serving Him and talking about Him and exalting Him in our lives. Let me pray for us. Fathers, we've walked through this book. Suffering has become so much the theme why we're called to live in hope. On a beautiful, sunny day, without a problem in the world, hope isn't necessary. But on a dark night, when storms are brewing, it's all we can cling to. Father, give us hope. Not in humanity. Not in our country. Not in our government. Not in our next elected official. Not in the outcome of a business decision or the produce of a farm. May our hope be alive. May it be Jesus Christ who's still at work, who's still moving, who's still active. We entrust ourselves to you, Jesus, that however we're currently suffering or struggling, you would use that for your glory somehow. We entrust it to you. Make us increasingly bold about who you are and what you've done in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.